Hello and welcome to your politics show here on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. That is the show where each week we talk to one of your local MPs to get the answers to your questions. If you've not been lucky enough to get an answer to your question this month, you can always DM us on social media when you see this go up or you can email in jason.mckenna at radioverulam.com and we will do our best to answer that next month. Today we are talking to Daisy Cooper, the MP for St Albans. Biggest discussion at the moment continues to be Partygate. The controversy rumbles on and we've had so many messages on this issue. It seems to be the right one to start off the show with. Your message continues to be that the Prime Minister needs to go. Does this incident uh, highlight the serious change that needs to be brought in so that our leaders are more able to be held to account by the people rather than just so-called gentlemanly parliamentary practices? I think it certainly does indicate that something has to change, but I'm not entirely sure what it is. Um, And the issue that we have is that for as long as anyone can remember, the ministerial code, which guides what ministers and the prime minister, uh, how how they should behave in parliament, um, is basically adjudicated by the prime minister himself. Um, And um, we're basically in uncharted territory now where the prime minister hasn't, you know, hasn't upheld the ministerial code and isn't enforcing it. And so something clearly needs to change. And the question is, what needs to change? Um, I think that there are efforts. I mean, hopefully there'll be some cross-party efforts to look at how we do this. Um, I honestly don't know what the answer is. I don't know whether it should be uh, people from outside of Parliament, sort of independent commissioners, or whether it should be a group of MPs in Parliament, a bit like the sort of Standards Committee or the Privileges Committee. Um, But one way or another, it does seem as though we need to have some sort of checks and balances um, on this particular issue. Um, But as regards Partygate, I mean, all I would say is that, you know, the number of people that have come up to me on the train in the pub, in the high street, who have said, this is what happened to me. These are the sacrifices I made. These are the people that I can say goodbye to or be at their funerals or be with somebody, be with their partner when they were giving birth. All these kind of things. People really gave up so, so much. And I think there is still a huge amount of anger and a lot of trauma that the people who wrote the rules then went on to break them and then tried to sort of cover it all up when they got found out. On this issue then, I was speaking to Bim Afalami a little bit earlier this month and he said that it's not a priority and that we need to move on to more important topics. But Daisy, would you say that accountability for our leaders is probably one of the most important topics for a democracy? Well, I think accountability is incredibly important for democracy, but I think what has also come out of this whole sorry saga is the importance of trust. Um, And actually, you know, we are facing a time of national crisis with the cost of living emergency. We're facing a time of international crisis because of the war in Ukraine. And I think it's at times of crisis that people really need to have trust in their leaders, even if they don't agree with everything they're doing. They need to be able to trust that they are doing that they are taking decisions in the national interest and for the good of the country. And I think that what Partygate really seems to have created, and you know, we saw this in the election local election results last week, is that it does matter to people. It is a priority, and people feel as though that trust has been broken, and they just don't feel as though the prime minister and his team are, are on their side. The other point that been made was kind of uh, as evidence the fact that we are in a crisis because of Ukraine and the cost of living that we should not change leadership. Do you believe that as well? 
I think it's an incredibly weak argument. I mean, the fact is in this country, I mean, I've lost count of how many times this country has changed prime minister uh, during a war when we were actually at war. We have to remember we're, we're not at war here. We're providing military equipment to Ukraine, but we are not actually at war ourselves as a country. And there have been times when we have been at war and we have changed leaders. There's been, you know, three, four, five different examples that I've heard over the last few weeks and months. So uh, it's an incredibly weak argument. And as I say, for me, I think it's the fact that, you know, when you have these times of crisis, people need to have trust in their leaders. And I just don't think people do trust Boris Johnson. And that was a message that was sent, you know, loud and clear last week in the ballot box. Well, let's turn our attentions to that. Um, I guess it, uh, as we said, there is a context of the cost of living crisis and Ukraine, but it is a positive week for the Liberal Democrats because you've done so well across the country. But why do you think that your message has resonated so well with the, a country-wide audience? I think there's a few reasons. I mean, the first, I think, is a really positive one which is that where Liberal Democrats campaign hard, we do set out a positive, optimistic, forward-looking vision of what we want to do with our communities. And here across the whole of the St Albans district, we talk very much about um, our focus on tackling the climate emergency, on building social homes so that everybody has a warm and decent uh, place to call their home, um, and also investing in community facilities uh, and playgrounds and things like that. So we have that forward-looking vision. Um, and uh, I think people also recognise that Liberal Democrats tend to work in be hard um, because we know how, how tough the voting system is. We have to fight our way in in between the two big parties. And so we do have a track record of working hard and being embedded in our communities. Um, but there's no doubt that there was a vote against the government uh, last week as well. And I think it was for a range of issues. You know, we've mentioned Partygate, we've mentioned the cost of living emergency, and those clearly are two big issues. And they came up time and time again on the doorsteps here in St Albans. But but there are other issues as well. And I think people generally just feel like they're being taken for granted. You know, in other parts of the country, particularly in rural areas, you know, farmers were promised the world, promised the earth, you know, um, uh, with these new trade deals. And it turns out that actually they're their incomes are getting slashed massively and they're, they're losing out and now their livelihoods are at risk. Um, and we've seen that replicated, replicated across many communities around the country. Um, and it's just this sense the government's been taking people for granted. You said on uh, your impressive victory that these elections are the clearest warning yet to Conservative MPs across the blue wall who are seeing their vote crumble before their eyes, having a law-breaking Prime Minister and a tax-raising Chancellor at the helm, sitting on their hands while families struggle with the cost-of-living emergency has left many Tory ministers sitting very uncomfortably indeed. Are you confident of this being a stepping stone for maybe a larger victory in the general election? Um, I wouldn't say we're confident, I'd say we're hopeful. Um, I mean, Liberal Democrats never take voters for granted. But we did get some really good results last week in what we call our blue wall areas. So these are the areas where we're in second place to the Conservatives and where we do intend to target Conservative MPs. Um, so places like West Oxfordshire, for example, um, uh, Isha and Walton, which is Dominic Raab's seat, uh, Wimbledon in South London. There are many of these places where we did incredibly well at the local elections and we definitely want to use that uh, as a building block and a foundation towards winning at the next general election for sure. Um, but as I say, we, we don't take that for granted um, and we're working incredibly hard between now and then whenever the next general election is to try and win over the support and the trust and the votes of those communities 
Let's turn the attention to the local council uh, elections and St Albans had a 20 council seat swing uh, towards the Liberal Democrats. Are you looking forward to continue working with the council on issues cooperatively now, seeing that it's Liberal Democrat council and Liberal Democrat MP? Yeah, well, um, St Albans District Council has been Lib Dem run since 2019. Certainly it started off as being Lib Dem led and then Lib Dem run, uh, started off as a minority administration and majority one. Um, and of course, you know, it does. I, I would work with any party that was running the, the local council, you know, MPs and councils have to do that. Um, but it does make it easier that we're the same party because we clearly have you know, share same, some of the same values and the same priorities. Um, as you say, we have had a fantastic result here in St Albans. We've won 50 out of the 56 seats across the whole of the district. Um, and we feel incredibly humbled by it. Um, and we also recognise that it throws up its own challenges. You know, I mean, we, we're very, um, you know, if you might expect as a group of Democrats, we're very acutely conscious that um, in the absence of much scrutiny, we're going to have to put new mechanisms in place. And Chris White, as leader of the council, has already started talking about that, you know, whether that's working with residents associations or doing more public facing meetings, you know, uh, you know, online consultations, whatever it might be. And we clearly need to build put those mechanisms in place so that we, you know, are constantly in touch uh, with the public and that we have the public as a, as a, a force for good scrutiny. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to um, working with our councillors. Many of the new councillors are people that I help to recruit and bring into the party. Um, and I love the fact that many of them are already involved in their residence associations or their parish councils or they're on the you know board of governors of their local school. So they're already in, really embedded in their communities. And I'm really excited to see what they're able to do. Let's turn the attention to the aforementioned solemn topic of the cost of living crisis. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, uh, when I interviewed Bim Afalami, he mentioned that you know we need to focus on, as he said, the more important issues. But when uh, we have seen Conservative MPs, maybe uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and his uh, appearance on the Sunday Andrew Neil show, we, we see them struggle to answer how the government is going to help those in most of need with a stagnating economy, inflation at 10%. This could be the worst cost of living crisis we've seen in many generations. I mean, what do you need, uh, believe needs to happen to offer immediate help just in the short term at least? Well, I mean, first of all, I would say I, I completely agree with you that we do need to see some urgent measures in the short term. There's all sorts of conversations we can have about what happens in six months time or a year, but people really, really urgently need help right now. Um, so two of the measures that my party have proposed, um, one is the windfall tax, um, and there's been quite a lot of support for that um, across the board. Um, a windfall tax would be on the unexpected profits of these big oil and gas companies. Um, our estimates suggest that we could raise around 10 billion pounds from that. Um, that would help us to fund an increase in sort of the winter fuel allowance and um, and other schemes like that to help those people who are really, really struggling, people, you know, people who are on the lowest incomes, help them with their fuel bills. But it would also help us to kickstart a 10-year programme of home insulation. So we actually start to reduce our demand for energy overall. Um, and that's a really, really critical measure. And um, the second thing we've called for is a VAT cut across the board from 20% down to 17.5%. And there's a couple of reasons for this. I mean, the first thing is that we have to recognise that actually this cost of living crisis really is affecting everybody. So, you know, whilst people who are on the lowest incomes will struggle the most, you know, I've been knocking on the doors of people in big four 
four bedroom, uh, you know, four bed houses in St Albans, and they're really worried about the cost of living and whether they can heat their homes as well. So a VAT cut would help everybody. Um, it would especially help people um, on the lowest income because they tend to spend more of their disposable income. Um, but um, it would also uh, help small businesses because people would have more to spend uh, on the high street. And it would help to tackle inflation. So it's got a really economic sound basis and it would also put around 600 quid back in people's back pockets. Um, and those are the kind of measures that we're calling for. And it has been incredibly frustrating to me that as an opposition member of parliament, I just feel like I've spent months and months and months now calling for these concrete ideas whilst the government just seems to sit on its hands. So it's really frustrating. And another idea that people have kind of bandied around, especially with maybe essential goods, is is a price or at least a price increase cap to to make sure that, you know, something as basic as maybe some pasta is not then out of the reach or becoming some ridiculous inflationary price. I mean, would that come into consideration maybe with a windfall tax there that there would be able to, to cap the prices, at least in the short term, to protect consumers? So I think what I'm in favour of is is people being able to um, have more money in their back pockets right now and being able to do more with it. (laughs) Um, I don't think that some kind of an interventionist measure to sort of cap the price of pasta, for example, is necessarily a good thing, because as soon as you start doing that, you get into real problems about what people, which items are capped and which ones aren't and what people can afford and how much they cost to produce. and, And it gets more complicated. I think giving people the freedom to choose what they need based on their sort of dietary restrictions and based on their family size and all those kind of things, by having more money in their back pocket is the right way to go. Um, I do think that when it comes to energy bills, which are one of the really significant, um, you know, one of the most significant increases right now, I think the best thing to do, as I say, is to raise this windfall tax. The fact is that these big energy companies have, have raised enormous amounts of money. You know, the chief exec of BP described his company as a cash machine, um, you know, because, because they're raising so much money. And the conservative argument, which is that taxing these companies would reduce investment, has been completely blown out of the water by the chief exec of BP, who said that we weren't expecting these profits. So even if you do give us a windfall tax, that will not affect our planned investment in renewables, because we were planning to do that anyway, before we even had these windfall tax. And that's the whole point of a windfall tax. You're actually taxing the money that the you're taxing the profits that they weren't expecting to get. (laughs) Um, And so they already had planned investment based on the profits they were expecting. So it just seems to be a a win-win argument. And I think the government has slowly, I hope, realising that they are losing the argument on this one. And we sort of heard rumblings today that Rishi Sunak may or may not be thinking about a windfall tax eventually. So for me, that's the best way um, of you know raising funds from those who are making huge amounts of money because of the war in Ukraine, quite frankly, and I think that's that's pretty sick. But um, imposing a tax on them to help people um, with their energy bills, it'll help put money back in their back pockets, which they can then spend on the essentials that they need. You've just mentioned there, uh, making sure that you know in the future kind of securing a green positive future there with with the the investment obviously from the private sector but also from the government as well but you met with the green alliance to hear ideas that would cost cut the cost of living in an eco-friendly matter i mean what were some of the ideas that were discussed that maybe the liberal democrats could or want to introduce Sure. So 
one of them is very much around um, home insulation. So if you, you know, if you start to insulate homes um, and you have re renewable energy, then of course you're actually reducing the demand for energy. So people have to pay less for their energy bills. Um, the other thing is around the government's energy strategy. So I found it incredibly disappointing that they're talking about measures that are many years off in the distance. You know, so for example, the government wants to invest in new nuclear, but nuclear will take years and years and years to be built. Also, it increases the cost of energy because you have to pay upfront to build the infrastructure for nuclear energy. If you compare that to, for example, onshore wind, onshore wind is now one of the cheapest forms of energy that's available. And it's very, very quick uh, to, to, to get set up. And there are many schemes already in this country where communities are given a, a say, communities have a voice on whether they want to have onshore wind um, in their community. And it's often done on the deal that if they agree to having uh, onshore wind near them, then they get much reduced energy prices. So actually that's a good way of moving towards renewable energy in a way that communities are prepared to accept and they can vote for, and they have the incentive of getting cheaper energy bills. Um, and I met with uh, Res, which is one of the world's leading renewable companies in the whole world. Uh, they're based in my constituency um, and I met with them recently and they're just incredibly frustrated that the government is not factoring in onshore wind as part of, um, part of their overall energy strategy. So that's something that I'll continue to push. Another upsetting topic that was revealed recently is that 56 MPs are on a list of those accused of sexual misconduct. Do you believe that there is a culture of misogyny, as some have described it, Daisy, in Parliament? Yes, I think there is. Um, and it's incredibly, incredibly worrying. I think the... Um, I mean, it's often uh, directed towards women, not exclusively. Uh, we know it's not exclusive to women, um, but we know it is generally targeted towards younger people in Parliament. So uh, whilst some MPs are on the receiving end of misogyny within Parliament, it's often uh, the staff who work for MPs who are on the receiving end of it. And there's a real power dynamic there between MPs and their staff, between men and women between perhaps older men and younger women in particular. So I think in terms of how we tackle it, I think the first thing is that we have to show a zero tolerance approach. And that's why I think it was absolutely right that the MP who was um, reported to have been watching pornography in Parliament um, uh, you know, resigned, um, because in any other workplace, uh, in any other workplace, that would be gross misconduct and you would be fired on the spot. Um, and um, so I think it's important for the women who reported that, that, um, you know, that, that there was zero tolerance displayed. The second thing is that whistleblowers have to be believed. And, you know, two female MPs reported those incidents and the way that it was dealt with by the Conservative Party and the party whip suggested that these women perhaps weren't believed initially. And that in itself is also very uh, troubling. So that has to be dealt with. And then the third element is really about the employment contract. So as an MP, once I'm elected, I'm technically self-employed. So um, uh, I have taxpayers' money, I have a budget to spend on staff and employing staff, but I choose who to hire and I'm their boss. And um, if you imagine a situation where an older, powerful man is employing, for example, a young man or a young uh, young woman or a young man for that matter, and um, that young man or woman thinks that their career is linked to that particular MP, if that MP is displaying um, unwanted behaviours um, or potentially illegal behaviours, it's incredibly difficult for those young people to be able to complain. And there was one case recently where a young member of staff didn't feel able to complain because the person who was responsible for dealing with HR matters was actually married to the person they were complaining about. 
Um, and so I do think that we need to look very seriously at how we employ people in Parliament and perhaps have an entirely independent body that is set up to employ staff so that if staff want to complain about them and their MPs, they have an independent way of doing it. And I would be very much in favour of something like that. Yes, let's hope there is uh, an improvement in the situation in Parliament because it does seem very worrying. Um, another topic that you've raised this month is protecting cash for local communities and businesses. You said it is vital for consumers and businesses in St Albans to have access to cash. The UK government needs to legislate to protect this. There's been more than 12,000 less free to use ATMs across the country since 2018. Daisy, has there been any progress on this issue though? Not really, not yet. Um, I mean, the first thing I would say, if, if it's okay with you, I'll spend a little bit of time explaining the problem because for the vast majority of people, in St Albans and in the rest of the country they just tap their card and they pay for things on their card and they quite like not having to bother carrying cash anymore so for the vast majority of people they just don't see this as a problem because it's not a problem for them but there are sort of two particular cases where it is worrying the first is that there are a number of very vulnerable people in our society who only use cash um, and they don't feel able or confident using a card for whatever reason um, and that's not just you know elderly people it's people who are vulnerable in other ways and the second thing is that we have a number of small businesses that receive cash and if they can't actually pay the money into a bank it creates more of a security risk for them as well so actually you know cash is still around we know that cash is sort of not as prominent as it was but for a number of very vulnerable people and the most vulnerable people in our society cash is still really important so um, there are conversations happening between uh, different banks about setting up a sort of voluntary scheme of um, making um, uh, cash withdrawals available um, you know from each other's ATMs um, but it's not as strong as the campaign that I support uh, wants it to be so some of us are pushing for action by the government to put in a certain sort of requirement requirement about how um you know how many atms there should be that be free within a particular you know um in a particular area geographical area for example and i think that is really really important because there are individuals that i know not in st albans but elsewhere vulnerable individuals who often have to get on a bus and travel travel for an hour and a half just to be able to access some money um and i think that's just simply not acceptable in 21st century britain now, before we get on to the community questions, there's another cause for celebration with you. Um, this month, you were voted as the most influential backbencher of 2021 after topping a public vote. I mean, how proud do you feel of that achievement, Daisy? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's always really lovely, isn't it, to get recognition. I think everybody uh, everybody appreciates it. Um, but when I was given the award... Um, I was very quick to, to, to make out that I think I won the vote because of my work on the building safety crisis to do with cladding and fire safety issues. Um, and the reason that that campaign was so successful was because of the hundreds of thousands of phenomenal campaigners around the country who are affected by uh, cladding and fire safety issues. A number of them live here in St Albans and I had the honour of taking some of them into Parliament to give evidence to parliamentary uh, committees. Many of them have come to the national marches, you know, some in Stevenage, some in, some in Westminster. Um, and it's really, really a credit to them that they have mobilised so much support. And I think the sign of a good campaign is when you have 
phenomenal campaigners outside of Parliament and then you have MPs who are prepared to work together within Parliament um, and I was really um, you know, honoured to be able to sort of fight their corner um, we managed to get a huge number of significant concessions from the government um, and that is testament to the amazing work of these guys. Um, we didn't manage to get ultimately where we wanted to get to but we got closer to it um, so yeah I was um, very honoured to, to, to get that award as most influential backbencher um, and I'm sure I'll stick it in a leaflet sometime soon so people are aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move it to the community questions though uh, again yeah. you know your your opportunity to to help the area and Sarah ha has opened the questions up with did you enjoy the vegan market on May the 1st are you much of a fan of vegan produce? Uh, nice question, Sarah. Um, so first of all, I think anybody who decides to go vegan, either for, for health reasons or for environmental reasons, you know, absolutely fair play to you um, uh, with that. Um, I have to admit, Sarah, I have Crohn's disease. Uh, and as a result of having Crohn's disease, that means that I can't eat um, many vegetables or pulses or anything like that. There's a lot of those kind of healthy items that are banned from my diet. So there are measures that I'm taking to try and reduce my sort of the climate impact of the food that I eat. Um, but I'm afraid that moving towards uh, vegan produce is incredibly limited in terms of what I'm able to do. <laughs> Michael has asked the question about the energy bill payout. He said, can you offer clarity on this £150 payout? The government's new wording changing it from in April to from April means I'm not sure when to expect it. Yeah, no, great question. And I think a lot of people are confused about this. So the situation is that if you are entitled to this £150, and you already pay your council tax by a council tax by direct debit, then the council will have automatically paid you, given you that £150 rebate. And in the St Albans district, around 16,000 people have already received it. There are a number of people in St Albans district, around 13,000, who are eligible, but they don't pay their council tax by direct debit. And therefore, the council has sent them all a letter saying you are entitled to this, you need to fill in this paper form and send it back to us so that we can process it for you. Um, so hopefully, and then there's a third group, which are people who are not in the council tax bands that are immediately eligible. There is a third sort of group of people where the council has some uh, discretion as to choose which kind of people in what kind of groups might be eligible for this support. So if there's anybody listening who is not automatically, uh, anyone listening that is automatically available but hasn't got a letter, or if there's anybody that isn't automatically entitled but thinks that their circumstances warrant it, then by all means contact your local district councillor or contact me and between us uh, we'll make sure that we can make representations to, to get you um, this support if, if, you're, if you're eligible to get it. Uh, Andy has focused the support on Ukrainian refugees. He said, are you proud that St Albans has taken the most refugees from Ukraine in Hertfordshire? Um, yes, I am. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're a city of sanctuary, right? We've got a very long history of taking in people fleeing persecution. Um, and that it goes really to the heart of St Alban himself, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, so we're I think we are very, very proud of that. I have to say the generosity of some families uh, for bringing in um, uh, uh, families from Ukraine through the Homes for Ukraine scheme is fantastic to see. Um, I've worked very closely with a number of these families simply because the application process has been very 
cumbersome. There have been lots of hurdles. There have been lots of administrative um, uh, mistakes along the way. And it's been hugely frustrating. But I am pleased that a number of families are now starting to arrive uh, in St Albans. And I know that the District Council are very keen to try and set up some kind of a network or support so that anybody who's newly arrived in St Albans can very easily and quickly access uh, local services and support. Carl has moved the discussion. He said, uh, Daisy, well done for highlighting the immigrant farce. We need them. Has there been any progress on your work to bring more in to help our crumbling NHS? Ah, good question. So we've got, there's about 110,000 vacancies in in the NHS across uh, England. um, And there's also tens of thousands of vacancies in our social care sector. Um, And we have to accept that a lot of people left um, after the Brexit vote. um, And a lot of people then left um, during the pandemic. They wanted to go home to see family uh, when they were able to, and then stayed. Um, But also there's been other kind of policy changes that have forced people, some people are just exhausted and and, and really just, um, uh, just burnt out quite frankly after the last two to three years. So we do urgently, urgently need to fill these vacancies in the NHS and in social care. Um, And I think the way to do it is to have a huge investment in actually um, training people here in the UK but we do also need to open our doors to people uh, from abroad um, back in January after um, after uh, it was a migration committee that recommended that more social workers should be allowed into the country um, the um, regulations were changed to allow that but fundamentally we do need to see a change of approach by this government to allow people to come here to fill the vacancies that we have and at the moment we have um, an immigration system that it claims to be a points-based system, but is in fact um, based on how much money you're going to earn. It's not based on what positions we have and the fact that we need people to fill them. Um, so a lot more does need to be done uh, in this regard and uh, we'll continue to raise it. Um, a number of us worked cross-party in Parliament to try and force the government to accept uh, an amendment to a piece of legislation called the Workforce Amendment, and it would have required the government to publish workforce projections every single year or every couple of years, um, and the government uh, sadly refused to accept that. So it means that there's still no independent publication of how many staff we actually need. Ian has uh, asked about the uh, power cut in St Albans. He said you wrote to the UK Powers Network for an explanation of what happened. Was there a reasonable explanation, he asked, and will there be another anytime soon? So the short answer is uh, no, I haven't had a decent response yet. I've had a holding response from UK Power Networks. Um, I was really shocked, like many other people, about the impact that this power cut had. Um, because um, the phone lines went down, which was very scary for anybody who needed to call emergency help. People couldn't use their mobile phones. Um, The uh, lights went down at St Albans City Station, so some of the trains couldn't go through. Um, Many shops uh, had to close because, you know, their ATMs stopped working and they couldn't take cash payments, so they locked up. So a lot of people, anybody who needed help, basically had nowhere to go. Um, And I was, you know, there was even one place, um, a, a block of flats, that relies on a pump to pump, uh, sorry, relies on electricity to pump water up and down. And because the electric power went off, they couldn't get any water in their flats. So it had a huge, huge impact across St Albans. Um, And so I have written a a long and detailed letter to UK Power Networks asking a number of questions about what they're doing to actually protect all of the infrastructure. It was incredibly worrying, but I haven't had a decent response yet. They've told me they're doing a full investigation. And once they've completed it, they'll send a letter back to me. And um, if 
Ian would like to see a copy of that, just ask him to drop me an email and uh, I'll make sure he has a copy once I've received a letter from them. Yes, well, we'll, uh, we'll pass his details on to you, Daisy. Um, Anthony has asked and said, thank you so much for your continued work on the forgotten COVID people. What has your progress been on securing EvuShield? Yeah. Oh, goodness me. This is another one of these issues where we continue to um, sort of bash away and we haven't had much progress yet. So, um, you know, as uh, Anthony's indicated, there's a number of people who are still effectively shielding. And we all know how difficult lockdown was, but there are you know, there are these people who uh, who are immune compromised, who are effectively still in lockdown and have been for the best part of you know two years now. Um, and the one way in which you know they they've had some of them have been eligible for vaccinations, and they vaccinations just don't have the same effect. Um, and so to ask them to go out into the big wide world, <laughs> to go into a shop, to get on a bus, to go to work, it's effectively like they're going into the world without any protection at all from COVID. And yet they're the most you know, clinically vulnerable. Um, this drug, Evusheld, is a potentially a real game changer. It would, um, uh, all the data so far suggests that um, after taking it for a number of months, these people were protected by 70 to 80% um, from having any kind of symptomatic um, issues with COVID. Um, and so it would really enable these immune compromised people to actually get on with their lives like the, like most other people are able to do so. Um, the government is holding back so far. They they claim that Evusheld hasn't been tested against particular strands of COVID, which I don't think is correct. Um, I've tabled a number of written questions to get answers from the government in writing. Um, and if I don't get um, better responses soon, I'll be looking for other ways to try and raise it. But there are a couple of other MPs who have raised it in Parliament, including one who raised it at Prime Minister's Questions just before the local elections. And of course, Parliament only went back a couple of days ago um, after a prorogation, after local elections. So I'll, I'll continue to keep bashing away and find other ways to raise it. The final question of this month comes from Patricia. She said, I love the factoid that you shared that St Albans was the origin of the hot cross bun. I must say, Daisy, I didn't know this. So that was uh, quite an interesting thing to learn. But she asked, did you make any yourself this year, Daisy? No, I get mine from the Abbey. <laughs> They're really scrummy. <laughs> so anybody who wants a, to taste an original hot cross bun, just get down to the Abbey and get them from there. They're go really and, nice. Go into the OG source, you know, from where it all began. It's uh, very good. I mean, uh, if, if people are interested in what I did, I made some with my gran and we, we gave some to, to friends and family. I, I just love the tradition myself. So that is the end of this week's politics podcast. I hope you have found the information useful. However, there is more from the politics podcast. You can head over to the Radio Verulam website and listen to the extended versions because our politicians have a little bit of extra time to answer your questions over there. Also, if you feel like you've missed out on anything, you can replay those interviews again over there on the website. And finally, if you feel like you've missed out with your questions, you can always email me jason.mckenna at radioverulam.com or you can DM us on any of our social medias. However, for this week, it's a goodbye, a good luck, and I'm wishing you the best of health and to see you again at the same time for next week's political interview. <laughs>